House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm, I'm Al Warren, and co-host today is Mr. Mike Brown. Hello. What a Hello. mysterious house this is today. Yeah, it's have always... You, have you painted? It looks It looks much nicer, maybe a little... Yeah, I think maybe you've opened the drapes. No, I close them when the sun's out. <laughs> <laughs> Vampires can't can't uh, function properly. It's too too bright and too sunny. It's awful. There you go. You know, let's get let's get some clouds in here again. You know, right? Yeah. Well, the clouds follow you anyway, Alan. So. Well, I certainly enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> well, now today we are speaking of a cloudy subject. We're back into true crime. Uh, now we're going to be speaking about the book called Bone Deep, and uh, it's it's quite the um, quite the uh, story. I, I don't even know where to begin. So um, let's just bring in um, one of the authors, Mr. Joel Schwartz. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for uh, for having me. Of course, of course, we we love stories like this. Uh, but this is a uh, Certainly, one of the most um, interesting cases we've we've been um, given a, a book of, and and it's certainly um, not your normal case. Um, so let's because <laughs> it's, it is complicated. I don't know how to begin here. Um, how did it? How did you get involved in the case? Let's bring you into it that way. That's fine. Uh, I got contacted approximately a week after. This occurred uh, by a relative of Russell Farias. Uh, he had been charged the previous evening with murder in the first degree. And uh, a woman had worked for me at a law firm right, almost 20 years earlier. I, I frankly don't know that I remembered her at the time. She called me and told me that her, her cousin had been charged with murder for the brutal stabbing of his wife. I, of course, was familiar with the case and had been on the news for several nights. Um, and I wasn't even sure I could help him because basically what the news has reported is he had stabbed his wife, he had confessed, and there was blood all over him. And that's how I got called into the case. Now, did, did you know um, Russell Faria before, or had you ever met him? Never met him, never heard of him. So this was all, that was all sort of new to you. Um, Let's let's talk about the basic case. So, like you said, he had, he had been accused of what stabbing his wife, and he, you said he confessed. Well, he didn't confess. No. That was the information that I believed I had heard at the time. Uh, I did go to meet him the next morning, and you know, at that time, I've done this about thirty three years now. At that time, it had been twenty twenty five something along those lines. And I don't know if it's good or bad. I still retain some of my naivete and innocence. And unfortunately, I believe my clients, sometimes I'm wrong. In this case, I had a gut feeling about Russ, not just because of Russ himself, but because of his story and his story that he told to me regarding his whereabouts and his alibi was so easily disprovable if he was in fact lying, that it lented the air of credibility. So that was sort of my first impression. Didn't he say that he thought his wife killed herself? Uh, uh, she was stabbed like 55 times and found with the knife in her neck. And I believe that that is what led the police to their initial conclusion, in addition to the, the husband always is, is the one who did it. Um, but he called 911, and he made a ridiculous statement that I just got home and my wife killed herself. And I think he actually said it three times on the call. It should have led them to believe the opposite. She was stabbed 55 or 56 times, and most of them, many of them, were in the back. Now, if someone was to step back and take a look at this, they would realize the person who said that, it would be a ridiculous statement, and they, they, you could almost eliminate them as a suspect because the statement is so ridiculous, to think that they're not going to, the police or the morgue is not going to take a look at the body and understand that so many of these are in the back is a ridiculous thing to think. Um, 
what they didn't do is realize that Betsy Faria had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was despondent, at least to a degree, and she had threatened and attempted suicide in the past. So when Russ Faria came in, he saw his wife lying on the floor with a massive slit in her wrist and a knife in her neck. And even though it was obviously the wrong conclusion, that was the conclusion he came to. We have to remember she was wearing all dark clothing, and all those multitudes of stab wounds couldn't be seen by him at the time as he walked, that he had walked in the house. Yeah, fair enough. It's sort of uh, unusual. So how did the police handle this uh, initially? As ineptly as one could. <laughs> um, what I would say to this is, to give them somewhat credit, they did an incredibly thorough investigation of Russ. He had Russ called me when he'd been arrested. If he knew my name and called and said, Joel, I've just been arrested for murder, I would have given him the sound advice of shut your mouth, I'll see you first thing in the morning, or I'm on my way. But keep your mouth shut, don't make any statements to anybody. Fortunately, he did not call me. He underwent 36 hours of questioning after he'd already been up about 15 hours. He told them exactly where he was, exactly who he was with, and while he was in the police department, they were able to go and confirm everywhere he was, either by receipt or by video. They, uh, they did find a receipt in his car and were able to confirm where he was at that point in time. They went and they separated the four people who he claimed to be with. They took them to separate police stations, interviewed them individually, and they all accounted for his whereabouts, making it virtually impossible for him to have committed this crime. That part of the investigation was pretty thorough, and they did my job for me there. What they didn't do was investigate the potential ultimate suspect, who was Pam Hupp. Not to say at the point in time, with the information that they had, that they should have immediately taken a look at her, but what she needed to know, and once she knew within the next 12 hours that she was the one who got the insurance proceeds mysteriously assigned to her four days earlier, and she was the last one with her, that in and of itself is enough to take at least a cursory look at this person. You know, when you step back and you have a look at this, see see the big picture and understand that there's something going on. Why why were the detectives not able to do that? That's the million dollar question. To this day, <laughs> ten years later, I don't know. Um, were they personally involved, or did they know them really well? Were they somehow the, maybe the detectives were were friends or something and? I looked at every connection I could, and I never could determine a connection between Ms. Hupp and any of the detectives involved, nor could I find a connection with she and the prosecutor. I gave you the big picture. The first thing they did, and there's a much smaller picture that makes it much, much easier and much more inept and arguably corrupt to not investigate and do the things that they did. Eventually, what, what did end up happening to um, Russ? Well... The short answer is, ultimately, he was convicted of murdering Betsy Faria, his wife. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. I continued to fight this. I filed an appeal. Prior to the appeal being heard, there was new information that came to light, and I filed something that I had, frankly, never heard of before called a Mooney motion that essentially says to the Court of Appeals, this information, had the jury heard it, is so egregious that it more than likely would have all would have uh, the jury would have come up with a different determination or a different verdict. As soon as I got that information, I filed it with the Court of Appeals, and within a matter of weeks, the Court of Appeals ruled on that. The Chief Justice wrote a scathing opinion and sent the case back to the trial court for a determination of whether or not there was going to be a new trial. Interesting, interestingly enough, the Chief Judge of the Supreme Court included in the motion or her ruling, that if the trial judge refuses to grant a new trial, then that would be grounds that would be included in the appeal as well, signaling to the trial court, I believe, that this needs to be retried. So now, how, how did Pamela Hupp get involved in the whole case? Like, who was she to, the, to, the, to this couple? Well, Pam and Betsy Faria had worked together 
interestingly enough, in the insurance business, <laughs> approximately 10 or 11 years prior to that. So they did have a basis for a friendship. However, everyone I spoke to said after they stopped working together, Pam really disappeared out of Betsy's life. It wasn't until Betsy got her first diagnosis of cancer that Pam somehow mysteriously reappeared and started spending quite a bit of time with Betsy. I can't go as far as to say that ultimately she had a plan in mind as to what she was going to do, but if you look at it, in hindsight being 2020, that certainly may have been her plan all along. Once Betsy's diagnosis became terminal after a period of remission, that's when I believe Pam's plan went into action, and that's when ultimately she had her sign insurance proceeds over to Pam, and then within days, Betsy was dead. How do you think um, this plan came about? Like, do you, do you have any idea of where, where it started or who came up with the idea? Um, I can only guess that it came through Pam's twisted mind. Uh, Pam had, well, there was a letter written on Betsy's computer the day prior to Betsy allegedly signing over her insurance proceeds to Pam. When the police interviewed Pam after Betsy had been killed, Pam continued to direct the police to this document contained within one of Betsy's laptops to which the police, even though they were specifically directed to it, didn't find till a box until 10 days prior to the second trial, some two and a half, no, some almost four years later. Um, so I know the plot was in Betsy, it was in Pam's mind, at least five or six days prior to executing this and executing Betsy. At what point in time the actual plan, the seed, Popped into Pam's mind is anybody's guess, and anyone who can see into Pam's mind is certainly the best mind reader in the world because it's a a, a warped and twisted mind. Well, um, so he gets convicted, put away for life, and she's left free, um, Pamela, that is, to go about her life. How, how did how did it get discovered, or what 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 led to her being caught? Well, that's a long story. Um, when you read the book, hopefully you read, your listeners will read the book, it goes into significant detail as to all the lies throughout the entire investigation. And the lies evolved over time, and the police became somewhat complicit in the lies, suggesting stories to her that she would ultimately adopt. It was so incredibly untenable, and I've never seen anything like it, nor will I. Um, as far as her getting caught, it's a little bit of a long-winded story, but what happened is it starts with, during the course of the trial, as I had stated, I was not allowed to get into certain topics, one being the insurance, one being Pam's motive, one being Pam's lies. Um, I wasn't allowed to do an effective cross-examination based upon the court's ruling, which is one of the most ridiculous rulings that I or anybody's ever come across. Yeah. Nevertheless, I would make what's called an offer of proof, meaning outside the hearing of the jury, I would have the opportunity to cross-examine police as well as Pam Hupp. During one of the cross-examinations of Pam Hupp, it turns out that she had created a trust for Betsy's children about five days prior to the commencement of the trial, some two years after the actual stabbing. So she volunteers to me, would you like to know why it took me so long? thinking that she's protecting herself, at least making herself look good. And I, of course, said, certainly. And she then volunteered that her mother had been sick with Alzheimer's and had just recently died approximately three weeks prior and that Pam had been taking care of her. To which I responded, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, after the conclusion of the trial, I received probably three or four calls from several individuals stating that Pam's mother didn't die of Alzheimer's. She fell from a third-floor balcony at her retirement community. Pam was with her and inherited the proceeds of her life insurance. Mm-hmm. Made that incredibly suspicious, so I called Homicide in St. Louis County, which is a different county, and I met with them and let them know what I had been told and let them take it from there. Uh, to lead further into what 
led to Pam being caught, that was one of the things that certainly aroused my suspicions, even though they had already been at maximum arousal. However, we conducted the next trial, and it's not uh, any surprise to anybody. We had a favorable result. Russ was acquitted. The day after the acquittal, I called the U.S. attorney in our district, and Rich Callahan, and I said, Rich, this needs to be looked at. She needs to be investigated. And if somebody doesn't investigate her, she's going to kill again. Somebody else will die. That's unfortunate because it turned out that I was right. In an effort during this investigation, at least I believe, to deflect once again, Pam Hupp took an innocent man who had been brain damaged in a previous accident, took, her back, took him back to her house, and frankly shot him in cold blood in an effort to attempt to frame Russ Faria once again by leaving a note on him allegedly written from Russ to, to take Pam, get the money from the bank, and then kill her and bury her somewhere. Um, that led to a separate prosecution for the murder of that gentleman by the name of Louis Dumpenberg. Pam is currently serving life in prison without parole for that murder. That murder, in addition to all the lies and evidence she told, are now being used to prosecute her for the murder of Betsy Faria. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what a devious person. Holy smokes. Oh, wow is right. But the, uh, you know what, frankly, she's not that bright. Mm -hmm. And this really wasn't that devious. When I say devious, or you say it, you're correct. But it just wasn't that good of a crime. Yeah. You read the information. You saw her lies. You saw her motive. And it was clear. As a matter of fact, and I do refer to this in the book, when I get the discovery, I'm looking through it. I'm sitting at my dining room table. And my seventh grade son asked if he can take a look. And it was cute. And I said, sure, go ahead. And he sat down there diligently reading the material for about a half hour. At the end of which he looked up at me and said, Dad, I know who did it. <laughs> and, he was, and he was right. Yeah. Wow. Pamela, um, um, so I guess she'll never get out. But what, what do we know about her history? Is, is, do you think she's been doing this a long time? Um, there's, been, there's been rumors. Um, I can't substantiate them. I've been asked about things like that. I looked into it. Uh, she, moved, she, she grew up in St. Louis. She was a pom-pom or cheerleader girl in high school. She played sports. Uh, there was nothing that would seem to indicate where the switch flips. I don't know what causes that, and I don't know how it happened here. I know she moved to Florida. She's been married a couple of times. And she had done things that were uh, wrong, immoral, that I came across, but nothing to this magnitude. If you step back for a moment and think about some of the things she's done, we know she's shot this brain-damaged individual, developmentally disabled, six times in cold blood, at point blank. If you want to believe what I'm saying, and the fact that she's charged with it, she stabbed one of her friends 56, 55 times. Think of what it takes to do that. Notwithstanding the fact that her mother, it seems, was pushed off a balcony, not over the bars, but the bars were kicked out. There were two of those balustrades found underneath her mother, and the others were bent out. There's been two separate engineering firms that have looked at this and said it would take something like 2,000 pounds of pressure to have caused this to happen, which could only happen by somebody kicking the bars out. Um, Pam was the last one with her. Pam told the home that she wouldn't be down for dinner. She wouldn't be down for breakfast. And I don't know the amount, but I know Pam inherited right from that as well. Was there any psychiatric examination of this woman at any point? I'm just curious what, uh, what was found about her. Well, she would continue to lie, not over the course of time, but over the course of minutes at times. For example, when the police first asked her the next morning if she ever went in the house, she said no. That changed within moments. They asked her, there was a phone, there was a record of a phone call between her and Betsy. Within a course of minutes, it went from, 
I called Betsy to let her know I was home to, I was almost home till I was home free, ultimately becoming, I was sitting around the corner from her house, waiting for her to call me back on a cold, snowy, dark December night. Those are obvious lies. They didn't happen. And then you would ask her about a lie and she would say, oh, did I say that? I don't even remember. It's because of this brain injury that I have. However, the injury would travel up and down the body. It became drop foot. It became a back problem. Whatever lie would fit her scenario for the time would be what she told. Um, at one point, it became she had a back injury, so she didn't have the strength to do something like this, to overpower Betsy, so she couldn't possibly have done it. Um, she wouldn't release her medical records. Her doctor wouldn't give up the medical records. She couldn't, she would never sign an authorization, and I couldn't get the judge to grant an order to allow me to view her medical records. So at this point in time, I don't know what her medical issues are. I don't think she is, as you would term in court, incompetent to proceed. And she certainly was competent at the time because of the way she attempted to disguise everything that she did. She's criminally culpable. There's just no question about it. That won't preclude her attorneys from having her psychologically examined, but they're going to know where they're yeah, I was going to say it's crazy. That's not the right word. <laughs> say, um, so I guess they're making a, um, a limited series on NBC here for um, for this. That's and, correct. Yeah. So you so you you get you get played by Josh uh, Dumo. Hey. Eh? So are you happy with that? Oh, I couldn't ask for a better actor or a better looking guy. I'm getting all kinds of credit for Josh. Uh, <laughs> the guy's the guy's a cool guy. He's a stud. He's a great actor, and uh, he's also a great guy. Couldn't be any nicer. We've uh, we spent a couple of weekends hanging out. Uh, I got to go on set and do a, a little cameo. And uh, it's not just Josh. Uh, Rennell Zellweger, I, I don't think you could find a better actress. And I don't know if your listeners know who Judy Greer is. Mm-hmm. If they look at her, they're all going to know exactly who she is. And, boy, she's wonderful. And she plays the prosecutor in this series, and she's fantastic. Wow. Uh, that must make you happy. Does, or does that put a lot of pressure on you when they make something like this, a series out of your book? No. Um, I've never thought of it as such. Probably because it's in the hands of such talented people. Uh, I've met with the writers hours and hours, and they're all wonderful. Um, the showrunner, Jenny Klein, is fantastic. And from what I've seen so far, They've just done a bang-up job. Wow. Um, so you think there will be any um, repercussions or fallback to any of the police or law enforcement during this time for, for this kind of a case? That's out of my hands entirely. Uh, I do think they did things that uh, were at least ethically wrong. Whether or not they're criminally wrong would be left up to the authorities now and that's in the hands of a guy named Mike Wood, who's doing a great job. It just sounds like a classic case of uh, tunnel vision. They they find a dead woman, her husband found her, and he's the one who's guilty in their mind right away. That's true, and it's confirmation bias. But what's shocking is that there wasn't somebody in this entire case over the course of all these years, one of the detectives that didn't just say, hold on a minute. Let's just step back and let's look at this thing. All right, he's got an alibi. It would have been very difficult, if not impossible, for him to have done it during the course of that time, given what the first responders said regarding the condition of her body. It would have been almost impossible for him to have come home and accomplished this. There wasn't a speck of blood on him, and everybody, all the experts have said, whoever did this would have blood on him. And he's wearing the same clothes that he was in all night, you know, that because, as I said earlier, he spoke to the police. They were able to go secure the video of him everywhere he went. Um, so it's just astounding to me, given those facts, the difficulty of him having done it, versus the obvious facts of Pam Hupp, at the very, very least, of being somehow involved. Again, the classic saying, you follow the money. You see who benefited from this, and we know who benefited from this, and that's Pam Hupp. Why they didn't step back, why nobody in the police department cautioned them, why the prosecutor didn't step back and say, okay, wait a minute, we got to take a look at this. This guy Schwartz, he keeps talking about this guy, this woman, Pam Hupp. He's going after her. 
that never happened, unfortunately. So what, what about this bloodstained, the bloodstained slippers that were found in his closet? What's, what was that about? No, those never concerned me. It was clear the slippers had splotches on the side and a little bit on the bottom. So what we were dealing with was clear to me that somebody picked up the slippers and dipped them in the blood in an attempt to frame Russ. Mm. They were his slippers, but if you have to look at the ultimate scenarios, if he was wearing them, there would be blood spatter droplets all over the tops of them. Mm -hmm. If he was wearing them and he stepped in the blood to get it on the bottom, there would be an imprint in the blood. That didn't happen. There wasn't. If he stepped in them and then stepped out of them, there was carpet where she was laying and the big pool of blood. There would be footprints on the carpet surrounding the blood. That also didn't exist. So given the pattern on the shoes, and given the evidence surrounding the blood and within the blood, it's obvious that somebody dipped it. So it, just and it's probably your opinion that uh, that was Pam who did that. It, is it my opinion that Pam did it? Yes. Yeah. Whether or not Pam had help, I don't know. I wouldn't make the mistake that the police made in this case and cast dispersions on anybody else. Mm -hmm. But my strong opinion is that Pam is the one responsible. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, the criminal charges uh, against Pam in regard to this murder were, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> very weird. Yeah, it's, it's uh, weird is the, uh, the the least adjective I would use. It's it's inexplicable. Mm -hmm. Again, ten years later, I still can't give you a valid reason as to why she wasn't investigated. It's very least, and then choose not to charge her. I think had she been investigated, we wouldn't be here today, and you would have never heard the name Joel Schwartz. Or Rasteria, and nobody would be reading a book called Bone Deep. Did Pam have any children, and how did that affect them, or were you able to ever meet with them? She does have children, and they would never meet with me, and I don't know the status of their relationships. Mm -hmm. and, and did she have, like, a husband as well, or a family? She absolutely had a husband. Uh, he made no comment. I tried to depose him. He... Uh, gave me no information, and he was never vetted or interviewed by the police. The only thing I can tell you is I've received information that since she's been locked up and sentenced to life imprisonment, he's, he filed for divorce. Ten years, at, ten years after the fact, which is crazy. Was their financial situation strained, or uh, it's, it's odd that, you know, the amount of money isn't, it's not a lot. Well, she would go on the record and say 150000 is nothing to me. She actually said, and I quote, if I needed money, my mom is worth $500,000 that I get when she dies. I'm just saying it would be a lot easier to fill a person like that. Which, again, when I watched it, and that's on videotape, when I watched that, it's like, are you kidding? Who uses their mother as an example of someone who I would kill if I needed money? Right. And then she ends up so, dying strangely. He ends up dying strangely. The, uh, uh, the pathologist changed it once I got involved from accidental to undetermined, and that's where it sits today, mm. as far as her mother's concerned. So are police still investigating that, or is it just going to remain un undetermined? I did another interview uh, where some, with some police from St. Louis County about three or four weeks ago. And they're taking another look at that. Uh, at the very, very least, it is highly suspicious. I don't know if there's ever going to be any more evidence there, short of Pam confessing to him. Right. Wow, that's a wild one. That's a wild case. How did how did you decide to um, get into writing a book on this? Like, what made what made that happen? Well, it was just so outrageous. Uh, it now holds the record. It'll be by two over Dateline's previous episodes. They had done four on the incredibly interesting case of John Benet Ramsey. 
and they had done four episodes on the incredibly interesting case of O.J. Simpson. We will now have six episodes, and I believe we'll do a seventh, on Pam Hupp and Russ Faria. And everyone I talked to said, Joel, you have to write a book. And that's just not something I've ever done before. And I'm busy as can be defending people. At any point in time, I had been approached by filmmakers, documentarians, authors, and I received an email one day from Charles Bosworth, who, as you now know, is my co-writer on Bone Deep. I was just in a mood that day, and I called Charles, and I said, come on in, let's have lunch, and we did, and we hit it off. One thing led to another, quickly put together a book. We went to the top publisher in the true crime genre, who, contrary to all the horror stories I've heard about finding a publisher, accepted us within a matter of days to publish it. And the reason, to get back to your initial question, is I really do think this is a cautionary tale. I can't tell you that, that was my reasons for writing it, but I think I've reread it three or four times. And in reading my own book, I believe that hopefully somewhere along the way, there's a law student or a prosecutor or an individual who reads this and understands, okay, I've got to do the right thing. Because here, or I've got to stand up and do, maybe even a police officer. This was so wrong, and why did nobody stand up and do the right thing? Um, and I think that that will happen. I hope that the sales of this book do well, not simply for me, but hopefully because people need to know about it. Um, I think that's the reason Dateline continues to air new episodes, because there is that interest. And it's something where Alan, Mike, myself, all three of us can say, we're never going to commit a crime. We're not going to go rob somebody. We're not going to steal. We're certainly not going to murder. But Russ Faria would have said the same thing 10 years ago. Remember, he just, he was at a friend's house and he came home to find his wife brutalized on the floor. And through no fault of his own, this is where he landed today. Um, so you can never say, I won't be charged with a crime. And hopefully, if you're ever looked at for anything, someone will stand up and because of this book, they'll say, you know what? I can see what happens when we, when we get out of line. Mm. I've looked at cases and I've seen them, and uh, one of the comments that has been said to me is, okay, if this can happen to a guy like Russ Faria, with you as his attorney, how does somebody with no assets um, have any chance whatsoever? You know, an African-American male in a predominantly white town in middle America with a public defender to help them who's overloaded on their case I can't answer that. What I can tell you is the judge in this case, Steve Omer, he said after this trial, those words exactly, and he vowed to go ahead and volunteer and try cases throughout the state, and hopefully others will help fix the problem. Yeah, it seems that seems to be one of the biggest issue, I think, in the public as far as um, the concerns of the justice system is a lot of people don't feel uh, it's fair, it's equal, you know, and, and things like, you know, Prince Andrew just paying out, 12 million pounds to get to buy out of a lawsuit. It's something a, a regular person would never be able to do. It's not fair and it's not equal. What you hope and rely on is that the people in the system are fair and equal. The prosecutors need to remember that their job is justice. My job is to defend my clients. The prosecutor is supposed to look at the evidence theoretically my job should be unnecessary. My job should be such that the prosecutor goes in and presents. If they don't know, which they don't, they're not there. They present the stuff to a jury fairly and accurately on both sides of the argument and let a jury decide. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, my job is necessary because human beings are involved in the case. And I think what happened in this case is the human beings on the other side, they wanted to win. It was a contest for them, not of right and wrong, but of winning and losing. I'd imagine this case, now that you look back at it, and you've actually written about it now, so you've gone over the details um, 
from a perspective of afterwards. But I'm thinking um, now that this has happened, how has it changed you? That's an excellent question, and that's a difficult answer. Um, I don't know that it's changed me. I, I do this job for several reasons. One is to help people. Two is, of course, to make a living. Three, I'm never bored, and frankly, every other job I've ever had prior to this bored me. Um, and four, and probably most importantly, I still enjoy it. The feeling of freeing somebody who is wrongfully accused is something that is very, very difficult, maybe even impossible to describe. I take somebody like Russ Faria and his life is in my hands, and, and I don't want to give anybody the impression that I have some sort of God complex. I don't. But I do feel a responsibility to that individual. So I do the best I can on every case I have, whether a person is charged with murder or rape or possession of marijuana. Um, I want to do the best I can to make sure that that person gets the best defense they can, and I pride myself on that. The Faria case, I don't necessarily change me. It certainly may have changed people's perception of me and enabled them to kind of see who I am in my job and what I do and what I'm capable of doing because I was not going to give up. So someone picks up Bone Deep, takes it home, reads it. At the end of the book, um, what is it you hope they take away from that? Well, I think first and foremost, I hope they're entertained, because if they're not entertained, then I don't know that it means anything. I, I hope that they take away a little bit of empathy um, for what it's like to be in the shoes of someone like Busteria. And ultimately, those people are going to be not just on juries judging others, but in life, when you judge people, you come to these conclusions, as these police officers did, and those, your initial impression may be wrong. Again, we had these supposed professionals throughout the entire system here making these snap judgments and then doing every single thing they could. I would say borderline, but it, go, it went beyond the borders, unfortunately. But doing everything they could to defend that decision, or as we said earlier, to confirm their bias. And hopefully people can take this away from it you know what, okay, I, I can be wrong. I, I don't need to judge these people. And if they're ever on a jury, to attempt to see through what's going on with the prosecution and do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, being in that business, too, and seeing injustice happen firsthand, like you're there, the people are relying on you that you're defending. Um, but do, does that in itself... That's an emotional journey. I wonder if that in itself, um, do, do you look at people differently after being in the system so long? I do. I, I, I've been, unfortunately, like I said earlier, I'm still a little bit naive and innocent, which is, I don't know if that's a good or a bad quality in this business. Um, I want us to believe in the goodness of people. Uh, I am jaded to a degree. I grew up in a suburb of St. Louis, Prior to doing this, if you would tell me that police officers take the stand and lie about something inconsequential as to where they found drugs on a person or where a murder weapon was or what somebody, what they witnessed, I would have looked back at you and I would have said, that makes no sense. Why would a police officer ever do that? They've got a job to do. They're just going to do their job. It's come full circle almost to the point now where the opposite is true. Now you've got to win my trust. You've got to show me this a truth teller before I'm going to believe what you have to say on the stand. I think that in the bigger scheme of things, that's unfortunate. Um, I never would have imagined, I've been doing this 33 years now, that I'd be at this point I am today and have that point of view. But uh, 
I forgot your initial question. Well, I, I think because we, we, we talk to a lot of cops and we deal with a lot of people, investigators, over the years. And I just sometimes I've even been out to lunch with some or, or doing talking, and they're always constantly looking at people around them and they're looking for something bad to happen. You know, they're, they're always looking for the bad thing in people. And I'm just wondering if you still, if, you, if this has made you look differently at people around you. Well, I just know what people are capable of. You, you do get jaded, unfortunately. Um, and some of my closest friends are now police officers, and we've become friends through the system. I mean, they're good cops, and they're good people, and they treat people fairly. I, you just can't help it but just get a little jaded, and it does fall into everyday life. I know about all the crime that goes on. I know about the rape behind the store. I know about the carjacking that occurred down the street. But sometimes the news doesn't report because the shops in the area don't want it. So it makes me nervous when my daughter, my son, my wife are going to those places. That's not necessarily a good feeling. But, you know, you kind of are who you are, and that's unfortunately a byproduct of what I do. As far as human nature, the sad thing I've learned is that anybody is capable of anything. And sometimes you think you know somebody, but you don't. And you learn that they're capable, not just of bad, but of good just as well. And going through a situation where I'm defending you and the emotions are raw, I see the true nature generally of people and more often than not, I'm pleasantly surprised, even if somebody is guilty of something, and I'm not necessarily talking violence, but maybe drugs or selling something along those lines, for the most part, they're a good person who has made a mistake or done something bad. Now, with that said, there are those who are the opposite. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that trials like this and, and, and other big trials should be televised while, while, it's going, while they're going on, or do you think it shouldn't be? I don't think I have an opinion on that. <laughs> I think people that are aware can force the judge to be more fair, um, and if that's the byproduct of televising, then I'm all for it. Um, part of the other problem, though, is there are a lot of individuals who simply wouldn't want, even though they are public trials, don't necessarily want something televised. And so I really don't come down on either side of that. If, if by publicizing things more, they're going to force fairness, then, like I said, have at it. I'm all for it. Yeah, that's definitely a good part of it. But I just wonder if... Um... If you're if you're in a trial that's televised every day, um, and with social media nowadays, I just wonder how if you could handle all the noise. You know, people like, do you see what tie he was wearing? Do you see his hair? Do you see how much? You know, things like that. Can you perform knowing that you have a million people watching you? Well, I think that would affect quite a bit of people. I, I would. I'm not camera shy. If you've watched any of the news covers of this. Um, the only concern of mine have is how they would show the top of my head if you could see my balls. Well, <laughs> Other than that, I'm fine. Well, that's that's the part they'll always find the weakness. Yeah, uh, so that's okay. Yeah. I can live with it. <laughs> well, how how was the the COVID um, for you and for getting this book out? Because now that it's just coming out, you must have been writing and doing some of the work through these uh, weird times, and I just wondered, did, did it sort of affect your writing? No, I think it actually may have provided us with some more time to help write, uh, because most of the courts were shut down, so Charles and I got to spend quite a bit more time than I would normally have during the course of the day. In essence, we didn't need to meet too much on the weekends, we didn't need to meet at night, we could do it during the day. Uh, my normal course of the day, these days, and prior to COVID, is... Uh, I'm, erupt, I'm interrupted pretty much every, probably six times an hour, maybe more. We were able to get substantive work done uninterrupt, uninterrupted. Well, that's, that's, that's a good thing, you know. And I guess you're kind of used to being under pressure, 
little bit of stress going on. Yeah, I, I will say I never felt stressed throughout the writing of this, and, and it probably comes down to a couple of things. Number one, I'm just an individual who I, I can deal with stress. And number two, the stress of the job is so much greater than the stress of writing a book. The, the book pales in comparison as far as stressworthiness to defending somebody who's facing life in prison, especially if you believe that they're not guilty. Um, so it's not something that stressed me out. It was, frankly, a bit of a lark. And beginning the process, I had no idea how well-received this book would be. I had no idea that we'd ever even get a publisher. Um, so to that end, I'm absolutely thrilled. And I continue to read the reviews we're getting online and in, uh, in the various book sites. And I am, uh, frankly, humbled buy those reviews, and I hope that your listeners buy the book and enjoy the book. They will. They don't have a choice. <laughs> okay, good. You know, people, yeah. no choice. They don't have a choice. They will have to buy this book. Um, <laughs> well, you know, so you worried about old Pam coming after you, you know? I've often said if I knew then what I know now, I would have carried a gun. And I am a guy who, <laughs> I am, I didn't, I, I'm not a firearms guy at all. Uh, I think 95, 98 times out of 100, they cause uh, accidents and or shootings that shouldn't occur and wouldn't occur but for somebody carrying that. However, knowing what she is now clearly capable of, I would have absolutely carried a gun. I would have answered my door with a gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you had a good conversation with Pam, or have you ever really, really been able to question her? One on yes one. and no. Yeah. I had a deposition of her and I cross-examined her, but to call it a good conversation would be, I don't know that anybody has had a good conversation with Pam. I don't think she's capable of that. She lies. She changes her story. There's no genuineness about her. And uh, I just can't imagine sitting down, having a face-to-face with her, listening to it and walking away satisfied. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, as we now know, she's diabolical. Uh, the things that she did, if you step back from them, take, pick any one of them, standing alone is ruthless. The evilness it took to commit any one of these and let's assume for the moment that she also pushed her mother off the balcony. Her mother was found with 14 times the normal dose of Ambien in her. Mm. Her mother weighed over 200 pounds and was in a walker. So her mother was not mobile. She would have had to roll her mother to the balcony. And that final shove off the third floor is really, really difficult to fathom if she in fact did that. And the others, Louis Dumpenberger, we know she did, and I think it's pretty safe to say she was at or acting involved in the Betsy Faria murder itself. And I, I, I can't imagine a situation more gruesome than Betsy Faria's murder. I mean, that's not like you're, you could really rely on anything she's telling you. No, you can't rely on anything. The, let me finish that last thought about the gruesomeness. Oh, yeah, yeah. The book, is, the book is called Bone Deep. When Russ walked into that house, he saw a knife sticking out of Betsy's neck that went all the way through the neck, down through the bone. The cut on her wrist was clearly post-mortem due to the lack of blood. And it was all the way through her wrist, almost as if somebody ran out of time in an attempt to cut her hand off. That's where the title of the book comes, and that's how gruesome this was. That wasn't a stab wound. That was a sawing of the wrist. For what reason, I'm not sure. And I think we may never know. Wow. She was getting ready to, she was going to cook the meal up, you know. That's <laughs> I, I don't know what she was going to do. <laughs> oh, dear. I have no idea. <laughs> well, you know, have to lighten things up a little here. Um, well, is that light? <laughs> yeah. Well, it is for me. 
My God. Um, okay, now do you have a website and a place that you like people to come find you and find out about the book? Absolutely. It's joeljschwartz.com. That's J-O-E-L-J-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com. Great. We'll have that linked up as well on our website. Um, do you, do you like you the social? So do you like social media and and interacting with fans as well? Are you easy to find, or do you stay away from that? No, I'm very easy to find. I am. I've been on social media on Facebook and the things that old people like me are on. <laughs> um, all of this uh, Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok is all brand new to me. Yeah. My kids and some of the younger associates here are, have introduced me to it. And I'm enjoying it. And anybody that wants to reach me, it's easy. Send me an email, send me a link, and I will respond. If you have a question, if you have a statement or a comment, or you, uh, you want to argue with me that Pam, Pam Cup is innocent, have at it. I'm, I'm glad to have that conversation as long as it's a civil one. I, I guess you're not getting any of that, are you? No. No, I was going to say. You know what? Well, I'm getting one of it. The, the, the prosecutor still insists that Pam Huff didn't do it, and Russ Free is the guy. Uh, of course, because yeah, that seems to be you a have common. to admit being wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's a common yeah. play, isn't it? You know. Well, it's certainly a pleasure. Um, now, the book we're talking about is called Bone Deep, and the author is Joel J. Schwartz. He's been our guest, and this is a book you need to buy. This is going to be uh, the, the best true crime book of the year, and of course, it'll be on our website. Anybody can find it. Um, thank you very much, Joel. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Uh, if you need anything, I'm easy to find. Like I said, just give me a call. Thanks, Joel. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website in the Shapiro Report. Find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.